Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, we're proud to bring you our first installment of the 25th annual IPLJ Symposium, Safeguarding Information Integrity in the Era of Fake News. The promulgation of fake news raises important legal issues regarding non-press media entities, social media platforms, and online content providers. This panel addresses the recent boom in fabricated online news, despite the fact that free speech and free press protections are limited to the truth. The panel was moderated by Professor Olivier Sylvain and features Capital Forum Senior Editor Sally Hubbard, Davis Wright Tremaine Senior Associate Jeremy Chase, and BuzzFeed Newsroom Counsel Matthew Schaefer. This event was recorded live at the Fordham University McNally Amphitheater on Friday, February 9th, 2018. To see the video from this panel, please visit our website at FordhamIPLJ.org. Thank you guys for attending the 25th Annual Intellectual Property, Entertainment, and Media Law Journal Symposium. My name is Alex Kirk, and I'm this, this year's Editor-in-Chief of IPLJ. Today we are joined by a distinguished group of speakers who we would like to thank for participating in the IPLJ Symposium. This event would not be possible without the support of the IPLJ Executive Board, our incredible staff, and our academic advisors, Professors Joel Reidenberg and Mark Patterson. I would especially like to thank our Senior Symposium Editor, Stephanie Grobe, as well as our Managing Editor, Matthew Hershkowitz, for their invaluable contributions to this journal. Before we begin, I would like to give a bit of background on IPLJ. IPLJ was founded in 1990 by a talented group of students with a passion for intellectual property, media, entertainment, and art law. We seek to provide a forum for the contemplation and discussion of potential improvements to our understanding of the law, serving as an outlet for students, scholars, alumni, and legal practitioners to execute these ideas. Since its founding, Fordham IPLJ has published one volume per academic year, comprised of four separate books covering a diverse range of legal topics, including articles by distinguished outside contributors, as well as student notes written by members of the IPLJ staff and the broader Fordham Law School community. Our articles have been read into the congressional record, cited in the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, and in amicus briefs to the Supreme Court. Given our role as thought leaders in the academic community, IPLJ has also developed a strong online presence to help us reach a broader readership of both legal and non-legal communities. Since 2015, IPLJ has dedicated resources to serve as a key channel for legal scholarship and to further advance our diverse fields of interest. Our website adeptly incorporates IPLJ's longstanding tradition of publishing scholarly articles on our blog and promotes our staffers' unique voices on our podcast. In addition, IPLJ conducts several um, special events for students, practitioners, and the academic legal community. This year, our annual symposium will focus on the values underlying our commitment to free speech and the need to balance this fundamental right with civility and respect for human welfare. Our symposium will examine how recent legal developments in First Amendment law impact the media and test the boundaries of these constitutional protections. IPLJ is dedicated to creating an open and vibrant forum for students to discuss vital democratic principles. Today we will present a series of panel discussions on legal issues including safeguarding information integrity in the era of fake news, European Union comparative law, and political non-neutrality in the press. 
We will also have a keynote conversation which will discuss the Espionage Act and the prosecution of whistleblowers and media organizations that publish confidential government information. The keynote will be moderated by Professor Cameron Russell and will feature David Brelo, um, Daniel Jacobson, and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jim Risen. I would now like to introduce our first panel, Safeguarding Information Integrity in the Era of Fake News, which will be moderated by Professor Olivier Sylvain. Thank you again for attending the 25th Annual Intellectual Property, Media, and Entertainment Law Journal Symposium and for your continued support of IPLJ. We hope you enjoy today's um, programming and please join us for the reception, which will be at 3.30 at the end of the symposium. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alex, um, and um, it's, it's so great to see the IPLJ doing the work that it's been doing, fully consistent with what many of us envision um, the journal would do, so congratulations to you, congratulations to Stephanie for putting this together. It looks like it's going to be a great program. Um, it's, it's my great pleasure to uh, moderate this panel, um, Information Integrity in the Era of Fake News. Um, before we get started, um, I'm going to introduce our great panelists, uh, and I'm going to be honest with you, this is a conversation that we're going to just crack open, um, because um, uh, everyone tends to have an opinion, but these folks um, are thinking about this um, regularly, uh, and it, rather than ask them to present anything formal, I think we thought it made sense to just start the conversation um, that we are all having already. Uh, I'll start from... In my introductions will be, will be brief um, at the request of the panelists, but also <laughs> the interest of discussion um, at the far end. Uh, Matt Schaefer is a newsroom counsel at BuzzFeed News, um, and uh, in that capacity advises his clients on day-to-day -day legal matters arising from gathering and reporting the news, including devising news-gathering strategies. He advises also the live morning show, AM to DM, which reaches million of people on, millions of people on Twitter. Um, before joining BuzzFeed, uh, he was associated with a boutique media defense firm specializing in First Amendment and content-related issues. Um, Jeremy Chase is at Davis Wright Tremaine here in New York. He represents and counsels clients on a wide range of issues in media and intellectual property, as the firm is well known for doing very well, um, including libel, copyright, trademark, right of publicity, privacy, news gathering, and First Amendment matters. He has a, a range of experience in litigation, complex contract disputes, um, but regularly advises newspapers, magazines, websites, publications generally um, on legal issues, um, and he also advises early stage companies. Uh, and Sally Hubbard. Um, Ms. Hubbard, Sally, is a senior editor who leads the forum's coverage of monopolization issues. Um, she was assistant attorney general in the New York State Attorney General's Antitrust Bureau under Elliot Spitzer, Andrew Cuomo, and Eric Schneiderman, um, which is quite a stretch of, of work. Um, uh, she's investigated and prosecuted a wide range of anti-competitive conduct under the federal and state antitrust laws, and she's been honored with the Lewis Lef Lefkowitz Award for her role in the municipal bond derivative bid rigging investigation. She's a member of the Antitrust Committee of the New York State Bar Association's Commercial and Federal Litigation Section, um, where she contributes to its publications. I, I should just I should add that she also runs a podcast, and this was news to me until moments ago, called Women Killing It. Um, and you can find it on iTunes and elsewhere. Among other people she has hosted have included Professor Zephyr Teachout, 
and women in, in electoral politics. Um, so uh, I'm so pleased that you all could come join us um, in the conversation. Before we do crack it open, I thought maybe I'd lay out a couple things as the prerogative, with the prerogative of being the, the moderator. Um, not by offering a definition of what fake news is, but by talking about why and how it's become a, a phenomenon. Um, I don't need to remind anyone here that the, there's a, there's a pre prevailing view that fake news had an influence on the ways in which people thought about the candidates running for the presidency. Um, but that's, that seems like old news now. Uh, it's enough that Facebook very recently has been tweaking its news feed, uh, it seems, every month um, to keep up with the concern that the information people receive is not authentic or verifiable. Um, enough that they are now purporting to, apart from um, moderating the newsfeed itself, they're going to now emphasize what they say meaningful connections and relationships as opposed to news as such. There's also an emergent phenomenon called, uh, that you may have seen that is, is pretty alarming, um, deep fakes. Um, that is um, where artificial intelligence is made to develop fake porn out of anyone's videos. Um, now, the reason I mention it is because there is an emergent view that video is also going to be a far more prominent piece of our media environment, um, and that the videos we see are not authentic representations of what they were originally posted to be. So truth is being stretched in, in ways that, that we are not yet, um, as a matter of law perhaps, prepared to address. On the other hand, it is old news that news is not true or might be fake or that information might be fake. Um, never mind laws addressed to fraud and unfair trade practice and libel. Um, there, there's a longstanding concern in, about journalists. Walter, Walter Lippmann in the 1920s talked about yellow journalism with skepticism, his concern about how it influenced public opinion. Even Madison concerned about, was concerned about the ways in which information uh, developed by faction could misdirect um, leadership at the, lower, at, the, at the federal level. Different regulatory agencies have tried to intervene differently around the world. I will just highlight one, and that, new, and that one, one remedy in France is that you have a news blackout in a few hours before the election. The problem here is that would likely confront a major obstacle in what we call the First Amendment. Um, what do we do in a world like that? So let's get started. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask the question of all of you. Uh, maybe we can start at the far end. Um, Matt, um, what do you think fake news is? Sure. Um, well, I think it's probably at least three things, which is maybe not that useful. but. Um, I mean, the first thing is the fake newsification of traditional media outlets. Uh, the president, for example, called BuzzFeed News a failing pile of garbage. Um, so that's too bad. Um, <laughs> that's a separate issue, and I think there's serious reasons to be concerned about essentially trying to cultivate a trust deficit between the public and traditional news organizations. Um, but if we're talking about fake news from more of an inf information integrity perspective, I think you are talking about disinformation, which is uh, provably false information spread intentionally to deceive the receiver of that information. 
And then I think there's a separate problem, this is the third thing, is misinformation, which basically you have individuals who receive that disinformation in the first instance, and then they pass it on to whoever is in their sphere, assuming that it is true, um, but not knowing that they are intentionally, or that they are actually deceiving uh, their audience. Good. Um, you want to add something, Jeremy? I, I mean, I think you summed it up pretty nicely there. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, as, as a First Amendment attorney, I could say that um, um, out of all of those, I, ironically, I'm most concerned with the first of the three that you mentioned. Um, obviously, that's not what we're talking about here. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that's basically, I, th I thought that was a pretty good definition. The first of the job. three is deliberate misinformation? No, the first of the three is, is the fake newsification of actual news sources. Um, I mean, um, my view on it is that fake news is really, um, de the definition of fake news depends on who's actually defining it. Um, and, you know, we're in a world now where we have, well, I was going to say a president, but we have really anyone in power who has news uh, about them that they find inconvenient or unflattering, it's suddenly fake news. And we're um, at a point where fake news doesn't really mean much or what it originally was meant to, or, or how it was originally defined, um, you know, for our purposes here, which is intentionally false information. Right. I want to see if we can get an agreement uh, on the pantless. Can we cabin out this first category that yeah. is mm -hmm. the misnomer that a, yeah. a news organization is a fake news organization? Yeah. Or is that, con is that do, you, do you think that we, that we should, for the purpose of discussion, no, um, we don't need yeah, to go down that road. Yeah, no, I think it makes sense. I just think That's it's something, panel, I think. you know, yeah. to be uh, to be cognizant yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. Sally, do you want to add something? Um, just I think to like get away from that first definition. Yeah. I think we know fake news is just news that is made up, completely yeah. false, either for profit or for propaganda, mm -hmm. and it's just fabricated. Yeah. There's no journalists, you know. There's and and it's not even. Also, you know, news that has some slight bias to it, I also would not include in the definition of fake news. Mm -hmm. What about Matt's third category? Um, the misleading story that people s distribute unknowing that it might be misleading. What, what do we make of that? I take it that the second is pretty uncontroversial. Yeah. That is deliberate distribution of false information. What about this third? Sally? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you need to focus on the fact that this is the reason why the fake news reached so many people was because it was so wi widely shared by users. And so actually this latest tweak that you mentioned to Facebook's newsfeed where they said, we're going to prioritize more content from your friends and family. Some say, some have, some have written, including um, Roger McNamee, an early Facebook investor, that this is actually going to make the problem worse because the news that people share is that incendiary, fabricated, uh, you know, salacious, fabricated news, not the fool surprise winning New York Times article. Right, so more alarming might be this second category, arguably more alarming. What do you think, Matt? I think the second category becomes, the, the sorry, when you say second, since I put right. them in a bad order yeah. to begin it with. <laughs> Misinformation or disinformation? So let's call um, the first one being disinformation, mm -hmm. the second mm -hmm. being misinformation. Mm -hmm. I think the second becomes less problematic if we find a fix for the first. Um, just out of curiosity, uh, because I think often one of the arguments is that disinformation maybe doesn't reach as many people as we think it does, that 
Um, there was a study recently that said uh, six in 10 visits to fake news websites were by the 10% most conservative uh, users. But did anyone see the tweet from Donald Trump about if Dow Jones ever falls more than 1,000 points in a single day, the sitting president should be loaded into a very big cannon and shot into the sun at tremendous speed. No excuses. Did anybody see that tweet? That's a trick yes. question. Right. That's completely made up. I, I, I tweeted that because I figured like that was a thing I would imagine that this person would say. I had no idea when I tweeted it that it was completely fake. Um, so I think, just to put a fine point on it, because I think it's kind of easy to be like, oh, I would never believe this crazy fake news website that there is a pervasive current of this stuff in the information economy. So let's, let's try to sort through the stakeholders in this um, just before we move on to the substantive issue. Who are its purveyors? Who? So we're now talking about disinformation and misinformation, um, right? As to disinformation, who are its purveyors? Who's doing it? Sally, do you have a sense? Well, we know that the Russian government did it actually not just at the election, um, but leading up to the election was also um, putting out polarizing topics um, just to just to splinter the American public and, and further polarize them. Um, but now that Russia has been so successful, I think we can expect any government that wants to influence an election or any, you know, um, political actor to, to do it as well. And we also know that, you know, the Trump campaign um, served um, dark posts to African-American men in Philadelphia to get them to stop voting. So, I mean, only those people who received it saw it, and we don't even know, um, only Facebook knows what this post said, but I don't think they were true. So I think anyone that has wants to use it for their political purpose or for profit, as I said right. earlier. Yeah, don't forget about the Macedonian teens. Yeah. <laughs> the New York Times was reporting on this a couple of years ago, right? The Macedonian yeah. teens involved yeah. in um, distributing false information in the interest of, of income, revenue. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so let's, uh, if, if there are any other stakeholders, it, takes, take, it, it sounds like nations might be interested. There might mm -hmm. be people who have an interest in undermining our electoral politics. Um, private actors? Possible. So let me give you I'm an example. Aware. So um, uh, there is an argument that uh, uh, there's always a commercial interest in distributing information about competitors that's false. And we see this, for example, in that phenomenon of astroturfing. Um, uh, can we include this in our discussion of fake news? Um, or is that a different category? I think uh, certainly it is it is worth discussing. Like, for example, if you follow the cryptocurrency stuff recently, um, a big issue with the cryptocurrency coverage was people were just creating fake news articles about people endorsing a cryptocurrency or um, cryptocurrency being, a, you know, given a, a stamp of approval by country X or country Y, which caused the price to inflate, and it was just completely made up news, right? Um, but I think there's, I think it's good to think of fake news as affecting more than just politics, but it also makes it almost unmanageable to discuss. <laughs> well, so, I mean, that it, part of the problem is the trust deficit. Is that, I think that's a term you may have used. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. 
the trust deficit is addressed just isn't just addressed to our national leaders, right? It's addressed to the to the information environment generally. So I wonder. That's why I wonder whether we all we can include private actors as well. I mean, let's let's throw that out there. What is lost when fake news is proliferates? What's this? What are the sort of things we lose? One might be a sense of trust. Anything else? So? Well, um, my concern is that it's really these engagement um, prioritizing algorithms that are serving this up to us. And what I worry about being lost is the entire public sphere of marketplace of ideas because it's not that we're all being exposed to the full range of ideas. We're each being exposed to our own private feed of what is going to engage us, usually using fear or anger. So this is the, the whole filter bubble phenomenon or echo chamber people have been talking about. And so you're literally losing the public sphere where all the ideas are out there and you can judge. Your ability to judge the veracity of one idea is much less if you're only exposed to the ideas the algorithm is feeding you and not the whole sphere of ideas. But isn't that more of a function of the fact that you're on Facebook in particular or Twitter and you're using their algorithm? I mean, I guess... How different would it be if we're talking about completely straight down, you know, not fake news, but just of your political persuasion? Right. So that's why I think that fake news is really kind of a symptom of the larger problem of these okay. algorithms of having two major, um, two companies basically control the information flow worldwide mm -hmm. using their algorithms. So I think fake news is really a symptom of that larger problem. Okay. So, I mean, we'll get to the remedies yeah. Yeah. soon. I, we've talked a little bit, um, Sally, about, um, about the, the, the economic structure of all of, all of this. And as an antitrust person, I assume there's a lot to say about it. Um, but I mean, I, I want, when I'm asking about what is lost, um, I, 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 I take it that there's something about the public sphere that's affected. And there is a concept, mm -hmm. um, um, Jeremy, right, in, in First Amendment jurisprudence that, that more speech would actually cure um, bad speech. Yeah. Um, what do you think of that in this context? Well, I mean, if you're in a filter, like, like, like what you're talking about, then more speech doesn't really do anything. Um, but I also think we're losing track of the fact that, um, you know, we're talking really about social media right here. But there are a, a ton of other sources of information out there. So I mean, once you remove yourself from the Facebook, Twitter bubble, you know, people, the marketplace of ideas is pretty vast. You know, whether it be through TV news or, or, you know, print media to the extent um, it's it's still <laughs> vibrant. Um, and I mean, people get their news from all sorts of places. I mean, one stat that I've seen uh, thrown around is that, um, you know. I think it was something like 60% of people have engaged with fake news on Facebook in particular or clicked, on, clicked through, um, which is used as evidence that people are seeing fake news and that they're, they're buying it and that's where they're getting their information. Well, I'm curious how many of those people are also getting their news from other sources. I mean, personally, when, when I get, you know, I, I know that I didn't see much fake news in, in, my, in my news feed during the 2016 election except for when, you know, my uncle posted something weird. <laughs> so, I mean, people, people get their news from all sorts of places, and I, I just don't know that we're necessarily, um, I mean, I guess it's important to talk, it's very important to talk about Facebook, but I also think that if we only talk about Facebook, we're losing, you know, the, the broader conversation. So what else other than Facebook? Um, what can we say about Reddit and um, other 
um, platforms that distribute information content, do they offer um, an appropriate check um, to the kind of hold that Facebook might have? Probably not. No, um, no, because I mean, again, it's a, it is a self-selecting platform. You know, you're going to go down the threads uh, that you that interest you, um, and if you're predisposed to like, um, you know, conspiracy theories about the CIA or PizzaGate or something like that, you're going to go and find those things. So, uh, probably not. So I, I'm 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 wondering whether the information environment is not is not as bad as we think if there are different sources of information. Um, as you say, Jeremy, um, the filter bubble phenomenon people have been complaining about for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are there was um, a, a concept called the Daily Me just 15, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. um, uh, where people expressed the view that there would always be a filter bubble. But we've, you know, our our information environment thrives today. Um, so maybe this is not as much of a problem as we think it is. What do you I think? Matt, what do you think? <laughs> um, I think that it is a problem insofar as it attacks the underpinning of our information ecosystem, which is facts, right? Um, you know, Ben Sass, who's a senator from Nebraska, in his first speech on the Senate floor, had this lovely defense of a shared set of facts. Um, I think that it is impossible to, if, we're, if what we are talking about is a deliberative democracy, it is impossible, impossible to engage with one another if we are standing on different mountains. Uh, so I, I think even if the information is out there, like a richer information environment is out there, if we're not getting it, and instead what we're getting is information that is essentially corroding our shared set of facts, I think that's a not insignificant problem. I, I agree with that to an extent, um, only, only in the sense that the fake news that we're talking about on this panel is a different thing than the siloing of news, which, which is, I think, what, what you're talking about, having different sets of facts necessarily. I don't want to mischaracterize what you're saying. Um, well, I mean, it, I guess it's a, it's a part it's of part it. and parcel part of it. Of it. Yeah. Um, I just don't want to overstate the the importance of fake news because I, I do think that it's much more the much bigger problem is what you're saying that uh, people are operating on two completely different um, sets of facts and right. two completely different um, channels of news. Um, if fake news is a component of one of those or both of them, right. then yeah, it's going to feed it um, and make it worse. But I don't think it's anything new in, in that respect. Can I say, I don't think it's anything new, but we've never seen it on this scale. Yeah. I mean, Facebook has 2 billion monthly users. Average time spent on the platform is 50 minutes a day. You know, 80% 80, <laughs> of internet searches worldwide are Google. So to the extent that things are moving, most speech is moving online, we have two really powerful gatekeepers. So I think we just have on a global scale, uh, these filter bubbles at a, you know, at a much bigger scale. The other thing about this not being able to counter to the speech, with these algorithms that not being a public sphere, you can't counter speech that you don't see. Right. right? right. Those posts to the African-American men in Philadelphia to get them not to come out to vote, Hillary Clinton's campaign didn't even know they existed, yeah. can provide counter speech mm -hmm. to that. Yeah.
So it's a fracturing of the public sphere at a scale that is vast. Um, and uh, the information and facts that people are getting as, res as a result are, are separate and apart from each other. So they can never, the, the marketplace metaphor never actually gets to be operationalized, mm -hmm. right? The facts mm -hmm. never get to be tested against each other. Is that, so if that's the case, then we, what's the fix, right? I mean, that we can transition to that. Um, Assuming, and there may not be a unanimous view in the audience here, and we're going to turn to audience questions in a moment, that there is a problem. But the sense I'm getting from the panel is that there is this fractured public sphere and that the opportunity for ideas to get mixed uh, and tested against each other never presents itself. What is the remedy? Um, I'll start at the far end. Uh, sure. Matt, what do you think? Um... Let's just solve this right here, right now. <laughs> uh, so this is the thing. It's, there's a pretty extensive body of research in uh, psychology and social science um, discussing how people react when they're presented with information that counters their deeply held views. Uh, the the knee-jerk reaction, I think, to fake news is to create fact-checking silos within a news organization like PolitiFact is within the St. Petersburg Time or you know separate and independent organizations that fact check what's going on in the world to kind of stem the, the tide of fake news. Um, largely ineffective, I think, because people don't like to be told they're wrong. Um, I think if you're talking about a fix from a kind of like I'll say a me perspective. What we need are people within someone's group, within their, their group with whom they identify, who actually say, no, this is not true. And you, you can see like glimmers of this on Twitter when, for example, like a very conservative or a very liberal um, politician says, no, this is fake. And it's within their, they're dispelling something that would otherwise inure to their benefit, right? So you see that get retweeted a bunch of times, which I think is kind of interesting because people are more likely, if I am a, you know, I grew up on a farm in Illinois, if I am a very conservative person, I'm more likely going to believe Ben Sass in Nebraska than I am, you know, Gillibrand in New York. So I think like it has to be some personal responsibility of whether it's Democrat, Republican, whatever, uh, some personal responsibility when it comes to, to the facts and calling fake news fake news when it's seen. Matt, personal responsibility. What, what, do, you, what, is, what do you think in terms of intervention, in terms of a remedy? Of yeah, I, <laughs> we have a suite of really bad options. Um, so, I mean, at the top, you've got the government and the First Amendment is going to say they cannot do that, um, and nor would we want them to. Um, I suppose, um, you know, with the relaxation of net neutrality rules, possibly ISPs could get involved, but God, I don't really want that either. Um, you could have at the social network level, I mean, a Facebook or a Google could um, revise their algorithm. They could, um, you know, kind of do what you, you were suggesting, which is maybe partner with um, some sort of outside news gatekeeper to either verify certain websites or to uh, give them a rating or I, I haven't thought that that one through exactly how that would work but that's a possibility but again you know 
Facebook and other social media sites, you know, their goal isn't necessarily truth, it's engagement. <laughs> so um, I don't know whether they're necessarily the ones to do it. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately it boils down to uh, personal responsibility um, and just making sure that when you see something that you know to be fake, you call it out. But I don't see a, a very good solution here. Um, and nor, nor do I want any, I mean, it really boils down to who's, who's saying what's fake. I mean, you could have, I mean, we're, we're talking about a very specific thing, but um, you know, if you have someone deciding on high what's fake and filtering something out, um, you know, the onion is fake news. Um, that's parody, that's protected by the First Amendment. Um, yeah, but you, know? you, you litigate truth and falsity all the time. Absolutely, but if we're filtering out fake news, I mean, we're, it, the goal here is for people to not get fake news, correct? Isn't that ultimately what it is? Um, so that's a different thing than falsity. I mean, fal you know, the First Amendment provides breathing space. You've heard that. Well, um, the, the, I mean, actually, Jeremy, so the, the Pizzagate story was a false story. Yes. It wasn't with regards to falsity and fake news. It was a false story. I agree completely. So, Started by a cat lady in Joplin, Missouri. Yes. True story. We, we need to get to the bottom. Uh, BuzzFeed did. <laughs> BuzzFeed did. Go yeah. to BuzzFeed.com, yeah. Craig Silverman. Joplin, Missouri. Uh, so, so, so Matt pushes you, Jeremy. So you do, you know, we litig litigators dispute the question of truth all the time Absolutely. in the context of libel. Yes. Um, and unfair trade practice. Sure. Um, so why can't we develop a remedy in law here? for exactly what I just said. I mean, who is deciding? I mean, are we, is the goal here? Yeah, I, I guess that's really the question. What is our goal here? Is it so that people never see fake news or punishing fake news? Um, if the goal is for people to never see fake news, then there is no solution. Um, if the goal is to punish fake news, yeah, I suppose you could come up with a, uh, some sort of a remedy. Um, but I guarantee you that the purveyor of fake news will say, oh, it was, it was just satire. Um, and good luck, you know, really convincing them. It's bad satire. So uh, with the notion of personal responsibility reminds me of a story I just read. Uh, I just read this somewhere um, the past couple of days that there are now browser extensions that I didn't know about that you can use on Chrome um, that helps you moderate your Facebook use, including deleting the news, the trending Topics. Um, That's interesting. Piece, um, called social fixer, um, but personal responsibility um, for some people, uh, Sally, uh, it, it seems to be sensible, right? I mean, in terms of civic engagement, we expect some sense of responsibility, but it might be light stuff um, if it doesn't actually get at um, keeping news, uh, fake news, mm -hmm. out. And I, I, I appreciate the way Jeremy has distinguished the idea of punishment versus keeping fake news away from people. What is, what's the right fix? So I agree that we don't want to have moderators or arbitrators of what is true, what's not true. Um, but I disagree that it's not, that this is something that we can't fix. In fact, I had um, Scott Galloway, who's a professor at NYU Stern and wrote a book called The Four. I interviewed him and he gave a great, gave a great quote, which was, when the tech platforms say something is not possible, that's Latin for it's not profitable. And I think what we have to realize is this is not just the way that social media works. This is a business model 
that uh, Facebook and particularly YouTube are pursuing to feed content based on engagement. They feed content to us based on engagement because that is what keeps us on their site so that they can serve us ads and gather our data, which allows them to target us even more for ads. So it is their business model to prioritize engagement. That's how Facebook now has like almost half, about half trillion market cap. It's been very effective business model. And they've been able to pursue that without any accountability for the consequences because they've not been regulated in any way and they don't have any competition. Um, so to me, I think you need an antitrust fix because it's like I said, the scale is a big part of the problem. If they didn't reach two billion users, there would be less harm done. But also if there was competition, then there would be competitive discipline on them to be like, oh, we can't just pursue the business model that makes us richest. We actually have users that are demanding that we um, do something real about this. So I think you need to fix, you need competition and you need to get rid of the, as long as you have these machine learning algorithms that are prioritizing engagement, we're gonna continue to have political polarization and fake news. If we're focused just on news, on, on fake news, and, and again, we are assuming that it's something that people are troubled by, um, why isn't antitrust just a really blunt tool? Because after all, antitrust addressed a variety of things. So you were talking about Facebook's collection of user data. There are privacy concerns there. There are also a whole set of other liabilities that we might impose on Facebook, but for their immunity under Section 230. So, so it seems like antitrust would be effective, but really would encompass far more than the problem of fake news. Yeah, it would, it would help with more issues besides fake news, but I think fake news is actually a bit of a red herring of the larger problems of political polarization and individual news feeds in no public sphere. So um, I don't think it's a blunt instrument because it is really the only instrument that is designed to address dominance, and I think dominance is the fact that Facebook reaches 2 billion monthly users 50 minutes a day is a huge part of the problem. Well, so, so oh, uh, I was just going to say yeah. really quick, I'm, I'm not advocating for antitrust fixes one way or another, but the, the nice clean thing about antitrust fixes, I think, for this problem is we've already decided back in the 40s that media companies don't have a First Amendment concern when it comes to avoiding antitrust laws. Um, that was United States versus Associated Press. When it comes to speech fixes, we do have First Amendment problems, even with false speech, which is United States versus Alvarez, which was just a few years ago, where the court said if it doesn't fall within a specific category uh, that is well recognized as outside of the First Amendment, things like unfair trade practices, libel, obscenity, those kinds of things, if it doesn't cause some independent harm linked to those things, it's actually protected speech, even though it is false. Uh, so if you're looking for clean fixes, and again, not advocating that antitrust is like the answer, but antitrust seems to open a door into a possible solution with avoiding the First Amendment issues. And data protection, as you mentioned, is also, I think, is very important because it's really a surveillance economy. It's really, um, that's what's led to their dominance is their, you know, ability to see, get a 360 degree view of users across the web. So. How, how do you deal with the fact that the Communications Decency Act does say that Facebook actually isn't the speaker. So, yeah. from from you know from an antitrust perspective, Facebook isn't dominant at all. They're not speaking. Um, you, don't, you don't have to be a speaker. Well, no, I, I understand that, but I'm saying like they're not purveying. They're not the ones. I 
this is hypothetical. I'm not necessarily taking yeah. it. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually curious um, because there are other sources of information. They're not, everyone doesn't have to go to Facebook. So Jeremy, you, can, uh, you were backing away from the point, but you, Facebook is a platform for the distribution of ideas. Yes. And this is their position. And the ideas that people distribute, whether they be true or false, are not theirs. Yes. So why, why is antitrust intervention with regards to fake news, which is related to the yeah. question I asked about its bluntness? Um, because I don't think the fact that the ideas are theirs or not matters for antitrust. What matters is that they, and first of all, they have a digital duopoly on advertising. Last year, Facebook and Google accounted for 99% of, or between 80 and 90% of whoever you ask, of all digital ad growth. So they're um, effectively um, monopolizing the digital advertising market, which is digital advertising is what funds legitimate news companies. So yeah. it's... You know, while they're pushing out the fake news, they're also destroying <laughs> legitimate news. And um, that was literally what, what spurred me to write the article a year ago that, antitrust, that fake news is an antitrust problem was because they were coming out with something called the Facebook Journalism Project. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is like a wildfire arsonist being like, I'm handing out cups of water. You know, I mean, it's just like they... <laughs> are causing the they are literally monopolizing the user data and the digital ad advertising revenue that all the legitimate news companies need to actually pay for their journalism so so this is this Absolutely is interesting um, this point about advertising i think is is fascinating sally because in in free speech doctrine there the court with some there's been pushback but the court has the Supreme Court has said that to the extent there's a threat to the distribution of news for broadcasting at the emergence of cable television, there might be free speech interests at play so that you can regulate the size of a company. Um, so there might be some analogs there. Um, can I? So I, I'm, I'm, I am curious, why, why do you necessarily call for an antitrust fix and not regulating Facebook or other social media platforms as a utility? Because... I mean, that seems like another, another option that, I mean, if they are just a, you know, a passive conduit for people to post fake news or whatever they want, um, why not treat them like the conduit that they are? I mean, that's basically the alternative. And so I actually ar argued in that article that I wrote a year ago that, you know, you, they should actually welcome antitrust enforcement because the alternative is is uh, utility regulation, and that's actually a more blunt instrument, a more aggressive yeah. instrument. Yeah. But is what we have with, like we were talking for the yeah. panel about net neutrality. Yeah. So we have, as I understand it, um, 20 minutes left uh, if we're sticking to the um, schedule. Um, well, I, I would like to open <laughs> to the to the um, to the audience. Uh, for any questions, I, I and while you think about questions, um, uh, I, I have a question for you all on the panel. Are there um, platforms, social media that are doing it right? <laughs> that are that are moderating, regulating um, the distribution of news I, and and fake news in particular correctly. Well, this. It's kind of like the fixes in. I think BuzzFeed does a great job. <laughs> <laughs> so Craig Silverman, who's one of our journalists, who was, uh, he wrote an article, he used the phrase fake news uh, 
for one of the first times back in like 2012 or something, and it was this like very self-reflective article. I coined the term fake news, and look what happened. Um, but what we do, and what our journalists do very well, I think, is take, for example, uh, tragedies like like Vegas. A lot of fake news comes out of those situations. We, our team, um, often publishes articles that like these are the. 12 fake news stories coming out of this tragedy. So for our readers, it is a good quick thing that they can go to and be like, no, this thing on Twitter is, is nonsense. This thing on Facebook isn't true. Uh, so it's kind of like a up to the minute curation of uh, our readers' news diets. I think that works to some extent. I don't think that that is a fix for the larger like issue of fake news for the reasons that I said earlier, but I think that's a nice so, I mean, I'm curious to see if you can say a bit more, why does BuzzFeed do this work? We'd have to ask our editors. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to, right? Um, you could report sure. on, you can, you can do great journalism, but it doesn't have to be about the phenomenon of, of, of this story. And I don't know if this is the case, so this is just me speaking personally, but our audience tends to hew younger. Um, it, it, it makes sense, I think, for a platform like BuzzFeed to curate what is happening on other social media platforms that our audiences use quite frequently. Um, and again, that's mm -hmm. my own, like, this makes sense. That's not what the, why I think the company does it. Um, but that it makes sense to like have like a trusted place to go that's like, we know you spend time on these platforms. This is our view on the information on those platforms circulating at this moment. But it must be a limited. I mean, you, it's a it's a it's a great project that BuzzFeed has been involved in. But I think even you and everyone has kind of recognized its scope is limited in that your audience would be inclined to follow these stories. It won't necessarily right. reach the yeah. folks you of course may we're, t we're talking about before. Yeah. Likely or trust Ben Sass than. Than right. Christian Gildebrand. Right. Yeah. Um, let's open up to the um, audience. Uh, See so if you can think about some questions over here. Hi. This is mainly for uh, Mr. Schaefer. Um, BuzzFeed, to my knowledge, was the uh, news organization that uh, made public the Steele dossier, and um, a lot of it was true, and some of it is like unconfirmed, salacious stuff. Um, and now. It's kind of being used as like a a, a term for misinformation. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about like the decision behind releasing it, because I I remember hearing at the time that a lot of other organizations had it and just didn't release it, and kind of if you think it would still be used as this kind of boogeyman kind of idea had you not released it, or if, if you think just like CNN or someone else would have released it right after, right after you chose not, had you chose not to? As your lawyer, I'm going to say be very careful about this because we are in ongoing litigation. Go on. <laughs> this is the thing about sitting next to a lawyer on a panel. Um, yeah, I can't really comment on the... Yeah. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> so... You might ask the question, I mean, we could ask about the, the Steele dossier in particular, or we might ask the question more generally, or hypothetically. Yeah. Um, that is, uh, BuzzFeed receives all kinds of information about political operators, surely, 
as does the Washington Post and the New York Times. How does it go about deciding whether something is worth publishing as a matter of course? Sure. So to take an example from the past several months, obviously there's been a conversation about sexual assaults, sexual abuse, and sexual harassment uh, in culture generally. And I think one of the first articles that we did on this was um, an article about R. Kelly and how um, he interacted with these various women who were his young fans. And as my colleague Nabia Sayed said to the Washington Post at the time when they were asking about, you know, these are dangerous articles to write, you're accusing someone of uh, sexual assault. They are, for the subject of the article, life-altering things, how do you decide to, that the risk is worth it to publish these things? And she gave a good answer, I think, which is what we're concerned about at BuzzFeed and what I think most news organizations are concerned about is that our articles are true and newsworthy. And I think if you have those two things, you have a good compass by which to decide what should get published and what should not. There's a rule of thumb at some publications that you have two sources. Um, does BuzzFeed operate on, uh, so, on a sure. rule of thumb? So I, I, think, I think every context, every article is different from the last article. Um, you can look at our reporting on sexual assault and sexual harassment and you will see you know, in some instances, we uh, have named sources on the record who are discussing these allegations, and others we have on named sources. And you know, the, the the reason why those people might not want to be named, all sorts of things that our reporters working with our editors decide. You know, what what makes sense for each particular situation. Yeah, and I mean to yeah. add to that, yeah. I've I've vetted a number of those exact stories. Um, and I can say it is one of the most stressful things to vet because, I mean, you know, we're, you, 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 know, you want to believe everyone and you want to give them the credence, but as a newsroom lawyer, um, that's not your job. Your right. job isn't to believe someone who's the, who's the victim, even though you really, really want to. You have to make sure that what you're publishing isn't going to get your company sued out of existence. Um, so you really do have to verify and verify and verify again, which can also be you know, oftentimes traumatic for the, the subject of the article. Which is why I kind of find it funny when you hear, you know, like the, the president's kind of, you know, thing where he's like anonymous sources aren't real or unnamed sources aren't real or, and it's like, if only you have been in some of the meetings that I have been in where it is, yeah. I mean, it, there, the amount of deliberation and careful thought that is put into gathering and disseminating the news. I mean, we, we are very, very careful in what we do. So when you hear something like that, and when you see people like believing that to be the case, it's um, you know, very disconcerting. Yeah. Hi, uh, so assuming we're, we're playing the long game here and recognizing the current political climate that we're in, is there any potential role for public early education on the principles of information literacy that could possibly have some long-term effect on this issue? So what, I mean, this is a great question. How do, how do we sensitize um, 
people, consumers, voters, about the problem to the extent, again, if people think it's a problem of fake news? Who does it? I mean, I think there should be some transparency requirements. I know there's a lot of people in Europe that are advocating for transparency um, in terms of the algorithms, like letting you know why they're feeding you something, um, you know, what data they have on you that's being used to, to show you this article and things like that. Um, I think transparency will help because I think once people realize, oh, wait, you know, you're serving me this ad to go to Vegas because you can tell that I am bipolar and I'm in a manic state. I mean, there's literally like Zainab Tufeki does great stuff on this. Check out her. Um, yeah, she's got a great TED talk about that's called We're Building a Digital Dystopia Just to Get People to Click on Ads. And she talks about how um, the algorithms are taking all these things into account because they have so much data on us that without even, they're taking into account data that we haven't even provided them. They can figure out about us. And you know, they, can, they, they can literally know when you're going to be like manic if you're bipolar before the symptoms happen. And they can serve you ads that would you know, uh, take advantage of that. So if there's transparency on that, I think that would go, if there was a transparency requirements for the platform to show how their algorithms, what their algorithms are doing. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of the machine learning algorithms, we can't even see what they're doing. Um, but that would, I think, go a long way to educating people wait, I don't want this data collected on me. And, and, and you know, so I think there's a, that angle of it, just to give people a clue about the extent of the data that's being collected against them and how it's being used would help to see what's going on. When you're saying early education, you mean early as opposed to? I'm a librarian. I think you should put third grade class. Exactly. That's what, I thought, that's what I thought you were talking about. That's, that's um, so, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's important to, you know, to teach kids really, really early what a real legitimate news source is. Um, again, though, you run into the problem of who's making the decision of what a real legitimate news source is. So, um, it also doesn't solve the problem of whether you can read a story to know whether the source is real. Mm -hmm. um, right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as, as, a, as a father of kids who are in school, there are online citizenship, class, citizenship mm -hmm. classes that are meant to teach kids some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's principles of, of authority, credibility, sure. bias, yeah. Absolutely. that aren't going to solve the problem, but I feel could have some impact in ingraining an earlier stage of... I agree. Check out, there's, there's a new nonprofit started by a woman that I know who was a formal, former journalist. It's called Lie, it, the website is lie-detectors.org. Okay. Can I ask a question? I'd like to ask a question about um, um, looking at algorithms. Uh, and I'm curious uh, for the First Amendment, um, the designated First Amendment um, representative on, on, the, on the panel. Um, uh, what what do you what do you think, general? Just as a personal matter, uh, as as whether under law, um, media companies or online companies ought to be obliged to uh, render their algorithms public. <laughs> what do I think of that? Um, I mean, I'm as. A I think that it would be problematic for all of those media companies. I mean, that's their is there principle. A First Amendment, is there a First Amendment argument here? To compel them to release their algorithms? Um, I mean, there is. Um, I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a particularly strong argument to make them do that. I mean, it is their principal IP. 
Um, it's an IP argument. I think secret. so more than anything. Um, and uh, I mean, releasing their uh, the actual algorithm, I think, would be very problematic for those companies. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't release information about what what their algorithm does. I think that's a, a separate question, but. I don't think that releasing the algorithm is really the answer because I don't think most people really understand what the algorithm would even do in the first place. I don't, I don't know if that necessarily solves anything. I don't know. Matt, were you going to say something on this? Um, I mean, I think, I think no is the short answer. Yeah. Um, I think you have major compelled speech problems. Yeah. Uh, I also think that you might have another argument that you have a right to, and this will probably piss Sally off, uh, <laughs> a, a right to anonymous speech, which I think your algorithm is essentially like a version of anonymous speech. Um, and you have strong anonymous speech yeah. protections in the First Amendment. Um, but I mean, I care more about having competing algorithms and having yeah. consumers and, and advertisers and publishers have other options to go to if they don't like the way Facebook's algorithm is working. Do you have another question? Uh, first for Ms. Hubbard. Uh, so you made a direct link between monopolies and the propagation of fake news. And I was wondering what's your opinion about uh, what was happening uh, the last week with the Nunez uh, memo in, in the context of Fox News and the fact that a few of its anchors called it, you know, they said that compared, like Watergate is child's play uh, compared to the Nunez memo. And then my question is, can we say that monopolies are necessarily what makes people go to extremes or maybe it's competition, like the example of Fox News. And then Another general question is that during the election, I think Republicans and Democrats spent $80 million on Facebook, and Facebook disclosed that Russia spent something like $100,000. So what did they do right? And what did they understand about the algorithms of Facebook that both the Republicans and the Democrats got wrong? Fantastic question. Okay, on, on the Fox News um, issue, I definitely agree that Fox News is a huge problem. So I don't think that the disinformation on Facebook is the only problem. I think Fox News is also a huge problem. Um, and even before Facebook came along, we were starting to see increasing polarization um, because of these news sources that were so biased. Um, Sally, when you say Fox News is a problem, can you say what you mean? <laughs> well, um, you know, honestly, it's the same, the same financial incentives that we see with um, the algorithm that are the problem when you're trying to just engage users with, the easiest way to um, engage users is with fear and anger, right? So this has always been a problem with news, but then you start having these 24-hour news networks that need to keep people engaged. And I think that's when we started to see a lot of the extreme polarization was the rise of these 24-hour news channels. So how do we adjudicate whether something is a problem or not, right? You can, of course, you anticipate that people would push back and say, well, I think MSNBC is, right. is a problem. Right. Because they also trigger me. Right. Right? Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that, you know, this, the polarization is a huge problem. And I think, again, um, Fox, Fox's market share, I'm sure, is quite high. Like, I would rather have a much greater multiplicity of um, news sources, you know, 
when you used to have the local news network in every town that was robust and people actually watched their local news and it was a different source of ideas instead of one network that controlled the minds of the whole nation or you know a good portion of the nation. I mean, what is their viewership? It's huge. So I think it's a competition problem too. <laughs> Not surprising to you. No. Um. And either of you have an answer to the first? So that was the first question yeah. about um, whether questions. There, there was there addressed to there. Sally, yeah. right? Yeah. About about um, whether monopoly is actually uh, a problem if competition is what is driving Fox to be extreme. Mm -hmm. um, the second uh, was a, a, a provocative question um, about uh, uh, whether or not um, uh, we are handling things in the United States um, in ways that we, you know, that others around the world, including maybe Russia, are, are, are handled, have figured out. Um, do you have a response to that? I agree. I, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, I, I think that the effect of, you know, $100,000 in ads on Facebook obviously was, was great. Um, but I also don't think that we should underestimate the fact that it had a lot to do with the candidates who were involved. Um, I mean, Donald Trump dominated the airwaves. Um, Hillary Clinton didn't, oh, that's one minute left, I'll be quick. Um, uh, Hillary Clinton didn't really grab the attention of a lot of the, the news, um, except for a lot of these fake news <laughs> stories, unfortunately. Uh, so I think that probably had a greater effect than anything. But, but yeah, no, your point is certainly well taken. Well, I mean, the thing that isn't said in the question is that the the, the relationship between media uh, and the political apparatus in Russia works differently, right? Um, yeah. Than it does here, um, and I think we would be alarmed um, if advertising were low and the U.S. government were actively involved in yeah. um, electoral politics. I think that's a shorter answer sure. um, to that, but an interesting one as a matter of comparison. Um, any last questions? Looks like we just have a, a couple seconds. Um, your hand has been up for a bit. Maybe a short question, and then we'll take our break. All right, short question. Please. <laughs> uh, you, you've talked about, with regard to the algorithms, um, publishing them or there being competition. My question is, is there any use or any possibility of doing away with the algorithms, perhaps on the basis that end users have a right to privacy? Maybe the algorithms are toxic enough that on public policy basis, they should just be done away with. Do away with the algorithms. Get rid of the surveillance economy and then the algorithms won't work as well because they require data to work. So stop the massive collection of data and it will stop the algorithms. I agree with that. I think that the surveillance economy is destructive and it violates our privacy rights and no one has a clue the scope of the information that's collected against them. And, and we should probably be clear, I think you mean particular kinds of algorithms, right? Because applications are premised on the operation right. of algorithms no matter what they do, right? They're, they're, processing inf they're processing information and they offer ways to process information. But maybe a species of algorithm that you have in mind. I, yeah, I'm talking about those that invade the privacy of the individuals, of right. end users. Right. All right. Um, I think that re we've reached the end of our time. Um, can you join me in thanking our great panelists? The 
Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Our audio mixing this week is by Patrick Ho. Special thanks to our symposium editor, Stephanie Grobe, to all of our moderators and panelists, and to everyone on IPLJ who helped make this event possible. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.